Dad Nefertas was riding on the bus number 22 CTA in Chicago. The bus was brimming with office workers, uh, some restless punkers, and fluent shoppers. At the Clark and Webster stop, two men and a woman climbed on board. Soon as they did, the driver of seasoned veteran immediately bellowed out, everybody watch your valuables, there's pickpockets on board. The two men and women who got on were known pickpockets and they would steal people's stuff on the bus. So you can imagine the ladies are clutching their purses tighter, the men's are, men are watching their wallets just to make sure. <laughs> the idea is that if you're paying attention and you're watching to what's going on and you're seeing what's happening around you, you're better prepared to handle anything that comes your way. The Bible warns us to be vigilant people because evil is less likely to overtake us when we're watching, when we're prepared when we're paying attention to what's going on. When we're paying attention to what's going on around us, we can, we can stay focused on what's really important. And you and I know we lead busy lives. Uh, some of us are still working. Some of you are retired. And what I'm told is when you retire, you're busier than when you were working. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but if someone said that, okay, there we go. I buy your, I trust you. We're busy people. And sometimes it's easy to lose focus on what's really important and we're not paying attention to what's happening around us, to the important things. And it's easy as Christians to get complacent. It's easy to get comfortable in our faith, to forget that diligence is necessary as we walk in this evil world. Pay attention to what's going on around us, watching. Here we're gonna see in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus will come again. He will come again and he desires that his people are prepared for his coming. He's coming back again. That's what he's gonna tell us here in chapter 25 is he's coming back again and he wants his people to be ready and prepared for his coming. Not that we're lazy Christians in our spiritual walk, but rather that we're paying attention and we're, we're watching what's going on around us. We're prepared for his second coming. The question is, have we lost focus in our busyness of what's really important? Have we stopped paying attention to what's happening around us in the spiritual world and in our, our physical world as well? In chapter 24, which is obviously part of the context of chapter 25, Jesus starts off at the beginning of chapter four and he's gonna say the temple is going to be destroyed. And of course, the temple was a center of worship for Israel. That was the the, the Alpha and Omega of everything in their spiritual worship was the temple and it's going to be destroyed. And we know that happened in AD 70. That's the beginning of what's taking place here. And then he talks about there are going to be certain signs to pay attention right before his coming. You should pay attention to certain things and you'll recognize that it's getting close to his second coming. He also talks about the abomination of desolation, which is when the Antichrist stands in the third temple, the rebuilt temple, proclaims himself to be God and begins the last half of the tribulation period of the time of Jacob's trouble, three and a half years. Then he says, learn the lesson from the fig tree. Is that when you see the leaves coming, you know summer is near. You don't know exactly when summer is coming, but you can be prepared to know that it is on its way. It's coming, it's near. So take a lesson from the fig tree, Jesus says. And then he goes on to say, but no one knows the day or the hour of his coming. And since we don't know the day or the hour, we need to be prepared and watchful for when he comes back. That's the end of chapter 24. And then he goes right into what we're gonna look at here in chapter 25, the parable of the 10 virgins. 
So it's a continuation of the same thought that he had in chapter 24, but now he's going to tell a parable about what's happening in this whole context of 24 and 25. And in chapter 24, that parable warned against postponing preparation for Jesus Christ's return. This one we're going to look at right now warns against making preparations that are adequate for the lengthy delay of Christ's second coming. So one of them was postponing making preparations, or one is, do you have adequate preparations for the coming of Jesus Christ? That's the difference of the two parables. So look with me here in chapter 25, turn on your device, open up your Bible, whatever the case may be. You may have heard this, and if you've not heard it before, great. You'll understand hopefully when we're finished what he's talking about. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. That is the designation of their foolishness, not being prepared. But the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. The wise were prepared. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. All of them, all 10. But at midnight, there was a cry. So unbeknownst, no one knew it happened to be right at midnight at night. There was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. If we give you oil from our supplies, soon all of the lamps will go out and the procession of the ceremony of the, of the, of the wedding will be hindered. So we can't give you any of our oil is the idea. Go to the dealers, go to buy, and buy for yourselves, 10. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. Afterward, after the door was shut, afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. I do not know. Five words that are terrifying. I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Picks up again in chapter 24 when he talked about the day and the hour. Here in this, the theme of judgment is prominent in the three parts of this chapter, chapter 25. They're all dealing with some sort of judgment and the responsibility and the relationship to that judgment and the people of God. So there's all, all three parts of this chapter is dealing with the judgment. So instead of faithful and unfaithful servants in chapter 24 at the end, these are wise and foolish versions. So we see that there's a, there's a division between the two parties. And when Jesus comes again, there's gonna be further separations when he comes again. He talks about the divisions. Indicated by this parable, a division takes place so in the context we're talking about right here, this parable was specifically taught to Jesus' listeners, the Jewish people, concerning the condition of the people of Israel. This is talking about the end times, talking about the tribulation period. This is tribulation period language is what we're talking about. This is the second coming of Christ that we're dealing with. It's not talking about the catching away of the saints that Paul talked about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Jesus didn't talk about that here. Later, he gave that information to Paul, a revelation to Paul. Paul wrote it down. So we're not talking about the catching away of the saints. We're talking about the literal second coming of Jesus when he comes to set up his kingdom. So as Jesus is speaking about the judgment of Israel in the last day, he is clearly addressing two kinds of Jews within the household of Israel. And although the context is concerning the Jews, yes, it is by extension referring to all of God's people since the resurrection that are awaiting his second coming. So by extension, it, it, it applies to us as well. What he said to them applies to us as well. So the imagery of the parable understood in the day when, when it was written, everyone knew this. I mean, this is typical Im image of a wedding ceremony. Everyone knew about this. It was common knowledge. Craig Keener wrote, Wedding processions from the brides to the groom's home, accompanied by song and dancing, normally happened at night, hence requiring light. The lamps here are not small, hound-held Herodian period lamps, which would generate very little light, but torches. And some of your translations will have a footnote at the bottom, and it says torches instead of lamps. So it kind of has the idea more of a torch than a small little lamp. Although details differ from one village to the next, traditional Palestinian village weddings in recent centuries climax with women torchbearers leading the bride to the bridegroom's house or home and the torchbearers going out to meet the groom and his male friends. Presumably the bridesmaids wait outside the bride's home for his coming to escort her en route to his home. So they're waiting, but they don't know when the bridegroom is coming to get his bride. They're waiting, but they're to be prepared while they're waiting. For the wise ones were and the foolish ones were not. So the focus of the parable is the simple matter of preparedness versus unpreparedness and the horrible outcome of the latter. So let me warn you right now up front, and, and you may have heard this before with other preachers and you may have even thought some of it yourself is, listen, do not get distracted with the details of this parable. The thrust of this parable, the major focus of this parable is preparedness. All of the other details just point to that, that, that focus of being prepared. So let's not try to ascribe all these details, all these meanings to all of the details of the parable. That's not what he's trying to accomplish. One thrust is that, are you prepared for the second coming of Jesus? That's what he's talking about here. So the kingdom of heaven is likened not to the virgins themselves, but to the story around what happens to the virgins. So it's not to the 10 virgins themselves, but what takes place with the 10 virgins. That's what the kingdom of heaven is likened to. When Jesus arrived, some were ready and others were not. That's the idea. Notice that the two groups of women were described exactly alike. There's no other than one was prepared and one wasn't. Other than that, they're in fact, they all fell asleep. They all were sleeping well. Fell asleep before the bridegroom came. And the fact that each group has five in it doesn't mean that there's gonna be five saved and five lost. It's simply saying there is a division that takes place. Kind of like where out in the field, one is taken and one is left. It just deals with there's a division that takes place. Some, a division, that's the idea here. There's some sort of division that takes place here. So he's warning, Jesus is warning would-be followers that they should be prepared. Be prepared for his second coming at any time since we don't know the day or the hour. We don't know when it's coming. Now, Matthew earlier in chapter nine already told us who the bridegroom was. So we don't have to wonder who the bridegroom is. Uh, chapter nine, verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So we already know who the bridegroom is. We got that point. He is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. An important point in this parable is the surprise element of the coming. 
It's a surprise. No one knew when it was going to take place. That's part of this parable is the surprise element in this parable. Oh, he's here. The cry went out. Oh, the bridegroom is there. The surprise element and the coming of the bridegroom. All the participants in the wedding ceremony were to be on high alert because only the father of the groom could make the official announcement to start the ceremony. Now, this is kind of an aside. What we're waiting for as the church is when the father turns to the son and says, go get your bride. That's, That's what we're waiting for. Go get, and it's on the father's note. He tells the son, go get your bride. So we're waiting for that as believers. We're waiting for the catching away of the saints. Go get your bride. So both the wise and the foolish are sleeping and actually the wise could sleep quite peacefully because they were prepared. They were ready for what was coming. So does the Old Testament provide us any kind of imagery of this idea of lamps and oil and light? It does. A couple of places. Proverbs 13, the Old Testament provides some imagery for this parable. Proverbs 13, the light of the righteous rejoices, but the lamp of the wicked will be put out. Or Job 18, 5, indeed the light of the wicked is put out and the flame of his fire does not shine. So there's some imagery already in the Old Testament about this parable, what's going on. Now you'd think, that wasn't very nice. The wise didn't share their oil with the foolish. That's not very generous. Doesn't God teach us to be generous people? Yes, but that's not the point here. That's not the point here. They tell them, go get oil yourself. Go buy it yourself. Go buy the oil yourself. See, the five foolish virgins, they waited until it was too late to prepare for the bridegroom. They weren't ready. They waited until it was too late. Now, obviously on festival nights, the shop stayed open later so the, the young virgins could go get some oil and come back, which they did because the shop stayed open on special celebration nights like this. What Jesus is saying to us is this, spiritual preparedness cannot be transferred from one person to the next. You have to be ready yourself. You can't do it for somebody else. They can't do it for you. Spiritual preparedness cannot be transferred from one person to the next. You have to be ready. Everyone is responsible for themselves. And the foresight and preparedness of the wise virgins cannot benefit the foolish virgin when the end time crisis comes. It's not going to be of any help for them because everyone needs to be prepared themselves. You would think the ordinary groom would say, come on in, this is my party, this is my celebration. He doesn't, does he? He shuts the door and they're on the outside calling out to him. They're not on the inside, but he shuts the door because they had waited too long. They're not prepared. And they cry, Lord, Lord, open to us. Lord, Lord, master, master, sir, sir, open to us, please. These echo the empty words that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter seven and the Sermon on the Mount. Almost identical idea. In chapter seven, verses 21, we read, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It doesn't matter to me that you made a profession of faith some night, some day, some time at an altar and you say, I trusted Jesus Christ as my savior. A profession of faith does not make you saved. Are you a possessor of that faith is the question. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
No, he's God. He knows everything. It's not the question of knowledge. I know it's, I have no relationship with you. I have never had a relationship with you. You are not mine. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, there was a time when the door was shut and the shut door points to the time when it is too late to alter the division between save and lost. It's too late to alter the division. You cannot change it. It is fixed at this point. The door is shut. He doesn't let them in. They're on the outside inquiring to get in. He says, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. You are not mine. You're not mine. And it was too late to alter this division. Luke 13 says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. I don't know you. I have no relationship with you. See, it's, it's fixed. The door is shut. So the question is then, when is it too late to alter the division between a person who is saved and a person who is lost. When is it too late to alter that? In other words, it can be changed up to a certain point, but when is that point over? When is the door shut on an individual? Well, the first one is when they die. When you die. At death, the door is shut. It is fixed at that point. You are confirmed either in sinfulness or confirmed in God's righteousness. The idea of judgment coming after death, the writer of Hebrews says, it's as, and justice is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So at death, the door is closed for the altar to division between the saved and the lost. So don't wait until you die. It's not, it's not going to do, you cannot go to purgatory and have someone pay your way out of it into heaven. It's not going to happen. And when we're young, we always are told, that's no hurry. Death is so far away. Talk to any young person. They never think they're going to die. They never think they're going to die. Death is so far away. Why hurry? Let me sow my wild oats for a while. I'll be a bit selfish. And later in life, when time is right, after retirement maybe, then I'll believe on Jesus for salvation. Don't worry about hurrying. It's not that important. There's a story told of a meeting that Satan held with his demons. It's not a true story, obviously, but it makes a point, all right? Trying to figure out how to trick people into eternal damnation. One demon said, I got a plan. Let's whisper in people's ears, there is no God. No, Satan said. Creation declares the reality of God. People are too smart to deny his existence. I'm not quite sure I agree with that statement. <laughs> Okay, you get my point. A few idiots might be sucked in, but not the masses. Okay. I got it, second demon said. We'll say there's no hell. No, said Satan. People innately understand the need for retribution and judgment. People won't buy that. A third demon said, hey, let me suggest how we might trick them. Instead of saying, no God, no hell, what does it say? No hurry. That's it, Satan said gleefully. And he commissioned his demons to go throughout the whole world whispering, no hurry. Let me tell you, there is a hurry. At death, it is fixed. There is a hurry. If you do not know Jesus Christ, your Savior, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are. So the point when it becomes too late to alter the distinction between saved and lost is at death, number one. No one knows what tomorrow brings, but there's a second thing, and it may not be at death. There's a second time we see that something has happened that alters the state of people. When you believe the lie and are deluded, what do you mean? Second Thessalonians chapter two. The coming of the lawless one is by the, inacti uh, by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing 
because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So we see they're not saved people. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion. They're still alive so that they may believe what is false in order that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Whenever that lie is out there and they buy that lie, whatever that grand lie would be probably from the Antichrist, but this grand lie that's out there and they buy it, they will be deluded in their estate that, that cannot be altered after that. They're condemned, the text tells us. They were in a fixed state, the state of condemnation. That state cannot be fixed once it is set. So at death and then at the delusion when you believe the lie. Those are the two things. Again, we come back. The main point of this parable, a person must watch and be prepared while they're waiting. That is the main thrust of the parable is preparedness. Are you prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ? Are you ready? Matthew 26, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so, so you could not watch with me one hour? Watch. Then that's the main point of this parable is watch. Pay attention to what's happening around you. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the watch therefore means to be prepared. It doesn't necessarily mean to stay awake. It has the idea of being prepared. Watch therefore. Be prepared therefore is the idea. So we must keep ourselves in a state of constant readiness that Christ is coming back and understanding he's coming back, of course, first for the catching away of the saints, then the second coming when he comes to the earth to set up his kingdom. We must be constantly ready. Matthew 24, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And vigilance is required because the time of the second coming cannot be known in advance. We are already told we do not know the day and the hour of the second coming. We understand that. Now, the lesson of the fig tree does give us some clues. When the tree puts forth its leaves, we know that summer is near. So there's a sign we can look around and say, ah, it's close. It's close. We can see it coming. It's close. And not only that, not only that, it's relatively simple to predict just about when Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, I'm not setting a date, but listen, listen to my thinking, okay? We are told in the, in the Bible that the Antichrist is going to sign a covenant with Israel, that covenant lasts seven years. In the middle of that covenant, he stands in the holy place proclaiming himself to be God, breaks the covenant with Israel, and we know we have the time of Jacob's trouble the last three and a half years, which is a horrible time. So if you were around the time that the Antichrist signed the covenant with Israel, you can pretty much say, just about seven years and Jesus Christ is coming back again. Now, you would not know the day or the hour. Of course, no one knows that. No one knows that. But you could pretty much guess. Generally speaking, it's going to be in this time period right now because that's what the Bible tells us. So we would know in his second coming. But the catching away of the church is fully unknown. We can't point to anything to say, oh, it can happen in seven years or it can happen in a year. It's fully unknown. So us living today, we have to understand that the catching away of the saints is not known to us, which means every day we must be prepared to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air and so forever be with him. We must be prepared daily is the idea. 
So this is not a case here of these true Christians, these ones waiting for the bridegroom, uh, of losing their salvation, but of people whom he simply does not know because they have never been his. It wasn't that they, oh yeah, they were waiting for the, for the celebration of the kingdom. No, they weren't. They weren't ready. Gable and Carson and Walter commented, because this parable concerns the consummation, the refusal to recognize or admit the foolish version must not be construed as calloused rejection of their lifelong desire to enter the kingdom. Far from it. It is the rejection of those who, despite appearances, never made preparation for the coming of the kingdom. They didn't care. They weren't, they didn't want to. They weren't ready for the king to come. They didn't care. Kind of like the parables, those who want to know more information, more information is given to them. Those who don't care, no more information is given to them. They don't care. Not every professing person will enter the kingdom of heaven. That's why Peter tells us to make sure your calling and election is sure. Paul says make sure you're in the faith. Just because you profess Jesus Christ, you came down at some time and I believed on Jesus Christ for salvation. Just because you profess him doesn't mean you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. The question is, are you his? Do you belong to him? Does he know you? In other words, is there a relationship established with you is the question. Remember what he said in chapter seven? I'll read it again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So just because you make a profession of faith doesn't mean you're admitted into heaven. There must be some credentials to get you in. And it's not our work, certainly not that. David Ward wrote, Alexandra Flynn of Fremont, Nebraska was looking forward to the 2002 homecoming dance. She left home in high spirits, but she didn't have her high school ID with her. When the man at the door refused her admission without her ID, she went home to get it. Unable to find it, her mother went back with her to the dance to identify her and to explain to the person at the door. Again, the daughter was refused admission without the ID. Alex had the tickets in her hand, but was still not admitted to the homecoming dance. Now, even though Alexandria Flynn of Fremont High is the student body president, plays cello in the Allstate Orchestra, is on the honor roll, is the school's number one cheerleader, and spent hours decorating the, the gym for the homecoming event, and she was still not allowed in. Oh, and did I mention, did I mention... She was also homecoming queen. (laughs) She never got in. In a similar way, getting into heaven isn't a matter of our good deeds or accomplishments. Without Jesus Christ, we have no idea to get into heaven. He is our ID. When we come to the gates, the pearly gates, admittance is not what I have done. Admittance is because what he has done. He is our ID to get into heaven. Just because you claim him doesn't mean you know him. Make sure your calling and election is sure. For none of us want to hear that I never knew you statement. So he, the king bridegroom, will return from heaven with his bride with him to enter into the millennial kingdom. In 1 Thessalonians 3, we read this, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He'll come back with him because he's already caught us away before his second coming to the earth. But Israel in the tribulation will know that Jesus' coming is near, lesson of the fig tree, but not all of them are going to be spiritually prepared for it. That's what this is trying to teach us. The dominant exhortation of this parable is be prepared. 
Keep watching. You do not know when your Lord is coming back. Luke 21, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. See, lack of preparation has eternal consequences. Let me say that again. Lack of preparation has eternal consequences. So how can we be prepared? If it's that important, how can you and I be prepared for Jesus' returning? I'm glad you ask. Actually, that's the parable of the talents is part of that answer, which we're not going to read, but I'll kind of highlight it. That is part of the answer is how you and I can be prepared for the second coming of Jesus, or in this case, the catching away of the church. How can we be prepared? How can we be wise instead of foolish people? The very first thing above all things, if you want to be wise and be prepared for the second coming of Jesus is repent and believe the gospel message. That is the first step. You must be a believer, not a professor of faith, but a true believer in Jesus Christ. You must repent of your sins and believe on him for salvation. That is the first step. If not, you're not prepared. When he comes, you will not be ready. Jesus said in John 3, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you do not know Christ, God's wrath is upon you. Or Acts 4, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there was no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So if you want to be prepared for the second coming, the very first thing is you must repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. If not, there's no hope. You'll be shut out when the door is closed. Repent today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the very first thing, very first thing. And he said, but I've done that. And I know I'm in the faith. My calling and election is sure. I've trusted Christ as my savior. There's evidence of, of salvation in my life. I know I'm a believer. Okay, what can we do then as believers to be prepared? That's the parable of the talents. Parable of the talents. We see that he, he comes and he, and he gives to three people, one five talents, one two, and one one talent. And he says, I'm going away for a period of time. Use these talents for my benefit. And when I come back, I'll reward you for it. Well, you know, the five did. They got five more. The two, he got two more. The one didn't listen to what the man said, buried it, and then gave it back to him at the end with nothing, no interest and no coming back. That's basically the parable of the talents. So what's he saying to us? We need to number one, prepare ourselves for his coming. He's coming back, just like in this, the talents. He came back. He said he was going away, but he came back. He's coming back so that the Lord will receive his bride without spot or wrinkle. We need to be paying attention to what's happening in our own lives. What's going on in my life? Am I focused on what's important? Am I prepared for the coming of Christ? Am I prepared for the catching away of the saints? In Ephesians chapter five, Paul wrote, so that he, Christ, might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. So the text says that God is gonna, Jesus is gonna present himself, the church, without spot or wrinkle. Our responsibility, according to Philippians, is to live out our salvation, to work out our salvation to every area of our life, which aids in his presenting us spotless and blameless before himself without spot or wrinkle. He's going to do that, but we have, the, we have the concept, we have the responsibility, I should say, of also working out our own salvation, not to be saved, but because we are saved. 
I like this also. When you're prepared, you can peacefully sleep. When you're prepared, you can peacefully sleep. So that's the first thing. Be ready, pay attention to what's going on, prepare yourself. But the second thing wrapped up in this parable of the talents is this. God has given to you, individual believer, some sort of talents, and I mean talents as in something you can do or even money in this case, but whatever it is he has given to you, he has asked you to employ that in his business. Use it for his glory. Bring a return on his resources back. That's what he's saying in the parable of the talents to be employed in his business until he returns so the kingdom of heaven is preserved and extended on earth. We don't want to be the one. In fact, as a believer, you cannot be the one, and you're going to see here in just a second, as the one who just doesn't do anything with his resources. The other two, giving evidence of their faith, do something. So my question is to us, Whatever it is he has given to us, I don't know. It could be your ability to work with people. It could be your ability to do research. It could be your ability to counsel well. Whatever it is that God has given to you, employ it for his business. Use it. Return what he has given to you with an investment on top of it. Use what he's given to you. The one talent person in this parable, we are told at the very end of it in verse 30, and cast the worthless servant into outer darkness and that place that will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The one who did not use the resources gave evidence that he did not believe the person who gave him the charge to use his money. He didn't believe him, so he didn't invest it. And he was judged and condemned. Chapter 24, Jesus is saying, I have told you all of these things. I have warned you ahead of time the evidence that you believe me, what I said in chapter 24, the evidence that you believe me is that you are going to be prepared. That is the evidence that you believe that I'm coming back again. Those who followed and served him in the world would be ready to meet him when he comes again. See, if we truly believe that he's coming back, we will live a life of preparedness. If we truly believe. The evidence that you do believe in him for salvation is that you are prepared. So the question is, have we lost focus on this concept that someday he's coming back to take us to himself? And when he does, we will stand before him and we will answer, according to Paul, what we did in this body, not for the salvation that's already taken care of on the cross, but what we did in this body, whether good or evil, will be rewarded for that. Do we really believe he's coming back? And if we do, the evidence is we are preparing ourselves. So the question is, are you preparing yourself this morning? Are you ready for him to come back and get us? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. It just reminds us that there is this division in humanity. There are some who will believe and some who will not believe. They, will not, they do not want to believe. They have no desire to believe you. A division comes. And Father, we know none of us want to be shut out when that door is closed when the state is fixed and cannot be altered, the division between the saved and the lost, none of us want to be there. We want to be on the inside with you. So I pray that we would check to make sure that our, our calling and election is sure, that we're truly in the faith, that there's evidence of faith in our lives because we don't want to be on the outside. So Father, give us wisdom. If anyone here today, Father, does not know you, thinks they do, but does not know you, I pray that you would show them in their heart and call them to salvation today, a true living faith, that will change their lives and get them prepared for your second coming. And for us who believe, I pray, Father, that daily we would remember, you're coming back for us. 
You're gonna take us to yourself and we need to be ready when you come back. We don't wanna wait until it's too late to prepare ourselves. We want to be prepared today. So give us the wisdom and the courage and the strength to be a people who are prepared for your second coming. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.